Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Alleluia! Christ is risen! Hallelujah. Easter greetings to you. It's good to be with you again this glorious and warm Easter day. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been praying and thinking through this collect uh, for the week because I was struck by a particular phrase in it that captured my attention. If you don't mind, let me read that collect again for you. It says, Almighty and everlasting God, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation. That's the phrase I want to think through. Grant that all who've been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. So I was struck by that phrase, established the new covenant of reconciliation. During this season of Easter, it's it's important that the church spends time considering the Paschal mystery of faith. It's actually um, in the liturgical churches and the uh, that operate according to the church calendar. Something that we we pause and we spend a, a series of weeks thinking about this Paschal mystery of faith. So today, I want to emphasize the idea of reconciliation as expressed in this collect. So, what does the word reconciliation mean? Uh, a quick little dictionary study. Merriam-Webster says that reconciliation is the act of causing two people or groups to become friends again after an argument or a disagreement. So there are two people or two groups of people who are at odds with one another for some reason, and they ought not be at odds. Uh, I'm reminded as I was thinking about this of uh, my childhood growing up. I have a younger brother uh, who's two and a half years younger than me. And when I was a kid, we would get into fights about various things. That's that's what brothers do. And my dad oftentimes would force us to stop the argument. And the way that he would do that is by saying, you guys need to hug each other. <laughs> that was his way of forcing reconciliation. And you can imagine an older brother and a younger brother that really didn't want to be reconciled to one another. That that hug was sort of like a hug with a, with a little bit of a, a, a jab on the way out, right? Um, it didn't generally work. Let me tell you a little story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then the serpent, who is more crafty, then any of the other wild animals said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? She was tempted with her husband and they gave in and ate. Genesis 3 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. Sin in that moment enters the world. Sin separates and it creates this division between, between God and between humankind. Humans were made for fellowship with God. And so now, as a result of sin, there's, there's this chasm between God and his creation. And God drives them out of the garden. He uh, presumably puts them away from him. A disagreement has occurred between God and humankind. And it's telling on the surface seems like one of the more gentle disagreements uh, that I've ever experienced, one of the more gentle arguments, at least as far as my brother is concerned, the most important disagreement ever to take place, however. For now, there is estrangement and enmity between God and humankind forever, unless something is done. So the alienation from God and his is from God and his people, right? It deepens into resentment and enmity. It's increased by carnality, hostile to God. Romans 8. It's expressed in rebellious wickedness. First, uh, Colossians 1, 21 says, you were alienated enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This falls on our side, our responsibility as humans who have chosen to walk away from God's guiding principles for life. In the, in the words of an old knife commercial, some of you older folks will remember this, but wait, there's more. God also has enmity with us because we've become objects of divine hostility. And so there is a divine judicial wrath that falls upon humanity. Romans 1 and 5 and 9 and 12 speak about this all over. And it's a result of our sinfulness that has brought this condemnation upon us. And so there's, in addition, a moral and judicial barrier between humankind and God. You see, if the separation were simply our own choice, where we decide we're going to walk away and do our own thing, we might simply be wooed back into relationship with God through the revelation of truth, the example of Christ, or the demonstration of his divine love. And the misunderstanding might then be removed by seeing how much God loves his creation, and we, in turn, could simply turn around and come back into relationship with him. End of story. All is well that ends well. But there's still a problem. Because in the New Testament, it constantly speaks of the basis for our reconciliation as the death of his son through the cross, by the blood of the cross, by Christ's physical body through death. Romans 5, Ephesians 2, Colossians 1. It's all over the New Testament. The way of reconciliation is through Christ who was made sin for us. Sin affects God so as to require from him judgment, withdrawal, correction, creating for God also a barrier to fellowship, a problem to be resolved before God and sinful humanity can be at one again, atonement. Once meant reconciliation, now atonement means reparation, satisfaction, the basis of reconciliation, 
whether or not good God could ignore the separation wrought by sin and embrace human beings in fellowship without further ado, he did not. He could not. We were only reconciled to God by the death of his son. He's the one who does this reconciling work. It's interesting that in all other religions, the individual appeases one's God. But in Christianity, God himself does this work. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 19 proclaims, God was reconciling the word to himself in Christ. Romans 5, 11 says, we have now received reconciliation. And we're given this reconciliation through Christ. We're given peace with God because Christ takes on the sins of the world and makes a way for reconciliation to happen through his death and resurrection. So the collect talks about a covenant of reconciliation. It's time for a little bit of Old Testament background here as a reminder of what a covenant looks like. Remember the, the first covenant ceremony that God had with Abraham in Genesis 15. God reminds Abraham of, Abram of the promise that he made that his heirs would number beyond the stars in the heavens. And to guarantee this, God makes a covenant or he cuts a covenant. In Hebrew, the word is berit. He cuts a covenant with Abram. And in the ancient Near East ways of cutting a covenant, what you would do is you would um, get together and a more powerful individual would ask a less powerful individual that you were going to have a covenant with to cut halves of an animal. Take a couple of animals, cut them literally in half. They would die as a result. And, and then what happens is... Yeah. So the heifer that God says to Abram to cut and the goat and the ram are cut in two. And Abram is there making sure the birds of prey don't eat them and so on and so forth. And he, he falls into this deep and terrifying sleep. And this, in this uneasy sleep, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves. Normally, in the ancient Near East, it's the weaker individual of the covenantal agreement that walks between the halves. And there's an implicit threat there. And that implicit threat is, if you don't follow through with the agreement that we're making, I, as the more powerful person, will cut you in half. It's kind of gross and scary and threatening all at the same time, right? But God walks through the halves himself in the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. And that fire in the scripture represents the presence of God. And so the, the ritual is dramatic and it's God placing himself under this potential curse. Abraham, if I do not prove faithful to my word, let the same thing happen to me as this heifer and ram. That's what's going on here. So should one not complete the covenant, to be reconciled would require the consequences of cutting oneself in half. So today we remember this new covenant that was made between God and humankind. The collect points us toward this recognition. God, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation. The way God made this covenant of reconciliation is by completing the covenant that he made with Abram. 
Abram's heirs, us, come in unnumbered multitudes like the stars as a result of Jesus, who took on flesh and lived among us, making a way for humankind to be reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. Hallelujah. Commentators have suggested that reconciliation is not merely the central idea, but the sole and controlling category under which everything Christian must be understood. Not only is the incarnation itself a divine act of reconciliation, which, by the way, we'll recite in a few minutes when we uh, recite the Nicene Creed. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose in accordance with the scripture. But Christ's whole ministry of healing Enlightenment and friendship is a continuous offer of reconciliation to us. The sick, the poor, the outcast, the leper, the insane, the underprivileged, the Samaritan, the Roman, the Gentile, the abused, the wounded, the wandering, the lost, the doubting, and those who are afraid. It makes a way for us to truly be reconciled not only to God, but to one another as well. One commentator in his statement on reconciliation says, so too the church was commissioned, not as a cozy fellowship of the like-minded, but as an agency of unification to go out into the world with Christ's reconciling message. The church's historic exclusiveness and endless divisions are thus direct contradictions of its essential function. The church's historic exclusiveness and endless divisions are thus direct contradictions of its essential function. When we recall that a shared meal, we're going to share a meal here in a little bit. In the eyes of the ancient Near East was a means of unity implying a covenant of friendship. We understand the original purpose of the Eucharist, not as a celebration of Christian privilege, but as an ever-repeated pledge and renewal of reconciliation to God and to one another. And in doing so, we're enshrining the basic commandment uttered at the table of mutual reconciliating love. Evangelism, likewise, should never be reduced to calling out of society committed converts to Christianity, but should aim to establish fellowship with anyone who would accept it, wherever and whoever and whatever they are, that all may grow together in Christ. This is grace, that we and all people would be reconciled to God and to one another. Thus, it is not enough to proclaim a past act of reconciliation is the essence of the gospel unless we go on to declare and to practice as the sole function of Christianity in the world the ministry of reconciliation we have received from God. These concepts are to be noted in the readings for today because as we understand the covenant of reconciliation, we're to follow suit as well. And the call it praise that we are to show forth in our lives what we profess by our faith. So let's identify them. In the gospel, Jesus himself, after his resurrection, came and stood among his disciples. 
three times in the passage, the gospel passage, he reminds his terrified followers that he has made peace with them. Peace is a symbol of reconciliation, which we pass on to one another each week after we make corporate confession. We're going to kneel and confess our sins corporately, and then we're going to pause for a little bit, and hopefully in that time of confession, we're thinking, am I at odds with anyone? Do I need to make peace with somebody? Why do we do that there? Because we recognize God has made peace with us in the reconciliation of Jesus on the cross. And since he's made peace with us by his sacrifice on the cross, now I have a responsibility to make peace with you and we with one another. And so after reminding his disciples of the peace he has brought them, he commissions them to go out and make peace with the world. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As a brief example, he goes out of his way for Thomas, the doubter, who refuses to believe unless he sees and touches the mark of the nails in the hole in the side of Jesus. Uh, and many of you have seen the Caravaggio picture of Tom, doubting Thomas. It's an unbelievable painting. Thomas can barely look at what Jesus is doing. He's grabbed Thomas's hand and it's like stuffing it in his side, right? Thomas, this is the reality. I'm alive again. And Thomas can't look. He's like, ah, right? It's this amazing picture. But what is happening there is this kind reconciliation that Jesus is having with Thomas, even though he refuses to believe. Or in the, the Old Testament reading for today, the book of Acts, the resurrected Jesus, our Savior, prompted the disciples who were eyewitnesses of his life and death and resurrection, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're empowered to live lives as agents of reconciliation. So in the book of Acts, we see the disciples all over the place, standing in the temple and teaching the people. And as a result of their faith in Jesus, his followers find themselves compelled to the marketplace to proclaim Jesus and to teach others. The early church lived into this responsibility as reconcilers of the word. And they did this without regard for the consequences. And they were steep. But they were thrown into prison. They were beaten. Many of them were martyred. When asked about this by the religious leaders of the day, they would say, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29. They showed forth in their lives what they professed by their faith. By the way, let me briefly point out something to you that I think is significant. The early church did this work together. There is always a plurality in ministry. In other words, they professed their faith together. They did not do this alone. In the Eucharistic meal, we proclaim our unity. Christ has reconciled us to him and to one another. From the epistle, Revelation, it reminds us that Jesus is the risen Lord. He is the glorious, holy, immortal one who is the reconciler of all humankind to God. And as a result, we are to fear not, for he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hallelujah. Fear not. 
because we know and walk with this one. Even though there might be persecution as we live as reconcilers like Christ did before us, living as a reconciler, we must live in the world. And like Jesus, we must go to where the lost are and where we can boldly proclaim and explain him, the reconciler. In other words, we cannot be satisfied with our safe spaces, with a beautiful church building, hopefully someday soon, (laughs) and think that people will come to us. We have to go to them. Jesus came to us, Emmanuel, God with us. It's our responsibility as reconcilers to go to them. Where is the marketplace in Grove City? Go there. Engage people there. Become a reconciler there. The Apostle John identified himself as our brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Like Jesus and John after him, tribulation will come if we are living into our calling to be reconcilers of the world. Like Jesus... We need to be ready to take on the consequences of the covenant that was cut on our behalf, for we are now in him and he in us. Indeed, in the post-communion prayer, we thank God that we are living members of the body of your son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. People will not want to hear of Jesus because they do not see their need to be reconciled to God, and they will rebuff you and they will challenge you, but fear not. How we bear up under that persecution or hardship is a testimony to our faith in Jesus. We've been given freedom in Christ from our sins because he has reconciled us to God in this new covenant of reconciliation. We are now free to live fearless lives for him, to encourage and offer this reconciliation to others as well. So as we approach the Eucharist today, on this second Sunday of Easter, let's remember that in this Paschal mystery, God has established a new covenant of reconciliation with us so that we who are reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in our lives what we profess by our faith. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.